0: This morning, I need to add a little extra to our Gospel reading, because somehow the first two verses of our reading didn't make it into the bulletin. So let's back up and imagine that we are back at the very beginning of the reading, and we're hearing this short little vignette. Then Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. And then Jesus goes on to tell the parable that we just heard. Now there's a story about how retribution entered the world. It's a pretty well-known story. It's from the Bible near the very beginning in the book of Genesis. And it's the story of Cain and Abel. The first two children born to Adam and Eve. Cain comes to believe that God likes Abel better than him, so he takes Abel out to a field, attacks him, and kills him. The first violence. And God doesn't kill Cain in return, but Cain has to go into exile. And he protests to God that he'll be a target for anyone who might attack him, and God gives him a promise that anyone who kills Cain, Will suffer a sevenfold retribution. Now there's a follow up to the Cain story, and it's not nearly as well known, but it happens just a few verses later in Genesis. And it's just a short snippet of a story about Cain's great, great, great grandson, a person named Lamech. And we don't know anything about Lamech, we don't know his life, we don't know his deeds, we just know one thing, which is a boastful song that the book of Genesis preserves, the song of Lamech, a song that he sings to his wives. And it's a song about retribution. We can imagine Lamech singing to his wives around the fire. For wounding me, I have killed a man. For striking me, I have killed a youth. Seven times is Cain avenged, but Lamech, 77. And so in just five generations, from Cain down through to Lamech, we go from sevenfold vengeance to 77, and the cycle intensifies. And it's as if to offer an origin story for how this cycle of violence and vengeance goes down through human history, as one act of violence leads to an act of retaliation, an act that feels justified, but an act that in return galvanizes the other to retaliate in turn. Victims so often become perpetrators or their offspring do. Back in 2009, Julia and I visited the Holy Land. And on our first day there, on our first walk outside our hostel in Tel Aviv, on a gorgeous beach, we passed a monument commemorating 21 young people who were killed in a suicide bombing in 2001 a kind of monument that's not particularly uncommon in that part of the world. Since 1948, when the State of Israel was established, there have been at least eight official wars and countless armed conflicts and acts of violence. For Palestinians, the devastating loss of a homeland generations ago is magnified not only by crushing poverty but also by every death of a child who throws a stone at an Israeli tank. For Israelis, the traumatic experience of attack at the moment of a country's birth is magnified by every experience of a suicide bombing. For anyone, when you've been harmed, it's easy to find a good justification for taking revenge. Have you ever had a crack in your car windshield? And left it too long without getting it repaired? At first it's almost imperceptible, just a little chink. But then it splits and multiplies. And soon the entire windshield is covered by a spider web of cracks, multiplying off the first one. Sevenfold. Seventy-sevenfold. That is what the cycle of violence is like. It's like a crack in God's creation, a crack in the universe we live in, a fracture. And that great mythological language of Genesis traces it back to the beginning, to the disobedience of Adam and Eve, followed by the envious murder done by Cain, followed by the boastful violence of Lamech, followed by, followed by. And so it's no accident in our Gospel story today that we hear these numbers again. Scripture is always a conversation with itself. And when we hear these numbers in our Gospel reading today, it's a direct callback to these numbers the first time they appear in the book of Genesis. How many times should I forgive? Peter asks. Maybe as many as seven? And when Jesus says, no, not seven, but 77, he's not talking as if we could use a handheld counter to click off sins until finally we reach a cutoff point that is bigger than we expected, but still exists. There's a significance to these numbers because there's a greater significance to what Jesus is doing, to what he has come into the world to do. He has come into the world not to increase the number of times that we let one another off the hook before finally taking vengeance. He's come into the world to unwind the cycle of violence entirely. He's come into the world to start a new cycle, not a cycle of vengeance, but a cycle of grace. Jesus has come to heal that fracture that's been multiplying since the beginning, as if we could take a video of the spreading crack in the windshield, and play it in reverse, until, little by little, the glass is whole once again. Jesus is offering us an alternative to the Song of Lamech, with its boasting and retribution. He's offering us the way of grace, which is the way of forgiveness. Now, there are a lot of misconceptions about what forgiveness means. Sometimes we hear people exhorting other people to forgive. To forgive people who have wronged them. And sometimes what's really happening is a desire not to upset the status quo. A desire to go back to an unjust situation, or an unsafe situation, or an abusive situation. And so we ought to be suspicious whenever we hear somebody with more power preaching to somebody with less power about how beautiful and essential it is to forgive. But that isn't true forgiveness. True forgiveness has nothing to do with condoning an evil. Actually, real forgiveness requires naming exactly the evil of what has been done. Its scope. Otherwise, there's nothing to forgive. And real forgiveness isn't forgetting what has happened. In fact, as Desmond Tutu writes, true forgiveness requires remembering exactly what has happened in order to work as hard as possible to make sure it never happens again. And true forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean trusting the person who has wronged us. We can forgive a person for the hurt that they've done us while realizing that it still isn't wise to put them or ourselves in a position where they can do the same again. And finally, true forgiveness doesn't take away the responsibility of the wrongdoer to acknowledge what's happened, to make a true apology, and to do whatever's possible to make amends. Archbishop Tutu writes, if someone steals my pen and then asks me to forgive him, unless he returns my pen, his contrition and confession will be considered to be nil. Now, Bishop Tutu and the black people of South Africa had a lot more than a pen taken from them. Without amends, true substantial amends, the wrongdoer can never truly receive the benefit of the forgiveness that's granted. It's the person who forgives that gets the benefit, the freedom. But the responsibility of the wrongdoer to apologize and make amends in order to appropriate the benefits of that forgiveness, that doesn't go away. But we can forgive others, even in the absence of an apology, even in the absence of amends. We can forgive even while continuing to fight for justice. Because forgiveness is not a feeling, forgiveness is a choice, it's the choice not to seek revenge. It's the choice, plain and simple, to halt the cycle of retaliation, the cycle of violence. It's the choice to fight physical power with spiritual power. It's the choice when we have been wounded by another, to choose not to wound back in return. We live in a time of retribution, and increasingly a time where the stakes feel high. We are in a time when self-appointed vigilantes are arming themselves to take justice into their own hands on the streets of this country. We are in a time when the cycle of violence seems at risk of spinning out of control. And that's no accident, because spinning out of control is the natural thing that violence does. It is the nature of violence sevenfold, seventy-sevenfold, but there is a different path. Those of us who are disciples of Jesus have seen a power that's more powerful than retaliation. Jesus is not shy about challenging evil or fighting hard for justice and freedom for those who are oppressed. But what he refuses to do is to take revenge, to harm in return. Even for the cross, Jesus prays for forgiveness for those who are crucifying him. And now, in his glorious resurrected life, Jesus has never stopped inviting even his enemies to let go of hatred, to be cleansed from evil, and to join in the heavenly banquet. We can choose to accept that invitation, That invitation into a cycle of grace, where we receive God's overflowing generosity and share it in turn with those around us, sevenfold, seventy-sevenfold. Or we can choose to stay locked in the cycle of Cain, the cycle of Lamech, taking retribution from those we hate and receiving it back, multiplied in return. Which cycle will we live in? Will we further the splintering of God's creation? Or will we follow Jesus into the patient work, the powerful work, of healing the world?